Tired of the negative news and flashover substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and PhD with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamlined news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. Well, my co-host Larry Dersham and I uh, consider this a very somber day, uh, a day that we commemorate uh, 20 years ago, the 9-11 attacks. We vowed never to forget and we never will. But so many questions still remain unanswered and we learn more about the attack, the people surrounding it, what's happened to to those that were directly involved in the meantime. Uh, And we talk about this once a year. We probably should revisit it more than simply once a year, but As long as we can talk about it, today is the day, because this actually is the 20-year anniversary. And it is to that extent that we have invited two very important guests with us today. And Larry, who do we have on the line for the first half? Uh, Yes, Wendy. Raymond Ibrahim is a widely published author and public speaker specializing in the Middle East and Islam. And we're so fortunate to have him as our guest on this 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attack on the United States. His books include Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. He's got another book called Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians. And he has one called The Al-Qaeda Reader. As a Middle Eastern expert, he has been a guest on every major TV news network. Thank you for joining us today, Raymond. Happy to be with you. Raymond, I I understand that you were born and raised in the United States by Egyptian parents who actually emigrated from the Middle East, and you speak fluent Arabic. I also understand, talk about a colorful past, that you had an athletic career that included playing football and actually winning the 1993 National Physique Committee <laughs> Los Angeles Bodybuilding Championship as a teenager. So with all of that, how did you manage to become interested in not pursuing being a professional bodybuilder, but becoming an expert in the history and culture of the ancient and medieval Near East? Um, yeah, as you say, I have a colorful checkered background and um uh, well, I said colorful, in, not checkered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's Big true. difference. <laughs> um, right. I even thought of that, the connotations, not too good. But um, <laughs> I, because of my personal background, you touched upon my parents being born in Egypt and me being born here. And I grew up sort of a, you know, bicultural, definitely bilingual, um, very appreciative of that part of the world. So as I got older in college, I gravitated and studied the Middle East and Islam and all these questions. And my family, we're what's called Coptic, so we're Christians, and so we have our own sort of um, history with the Islamic world, which all coalesced with, of course, you know, 20 years ago today with 9-11, because when that happens, the 9-11 strikes. And as I said, excuse me, there's people outside lawnmowers making the racket, so I'm sorry about that. But when the 9-11 strikes happened, um, I was actually studying in college, writing my MA thesis about Islamic Jihad, no less. 
Wow. And in fact, about the very first uh, Islamic uh, jihadist attack or, or what we call Muslim conquest, the early Arab conquest of the 7th century of what we call Byzantine territory. So when 9-11 happened, um, it took me away from the sort of landscape of long ago and early history and, you know, Muslim Christian crusader clashes. And I gravitated and started learning more and reading more about people like Osama bin Laden. And right around the same time, after I graduated, I got a job at the Library of Congress in the Arabic section. So actually all the books that were written in Arabic and Persian, Iranian, the Near East section, I was working there as well and going to Georgetown University. So this is, we're talking now a little uh, less than 20 years ago, about eight, you know, I'm sorry, about 21, 22 years ago. And um, I found all these writings by uh, Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahri, who's now the Al-Qaeda reader, uh, at the Library of Congress that were never translated in Arabic. And uh, what really got me initially is, so as I said, my background was more of a historical kind of doctrinal thing. And then when I came and started reading what Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were saying, it really was interesting because it comported very well with what I had been studying and not what we were being told by the experts. Because the experts were telling us that Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, these guys and what they did had nothing to do with true proper Islam, and it was all about grievances, et cetera. And in fact, that's what Al-Qaeda said when they wrote, when they sent communiques directly to the West. But the writings I came across, which were written to fellow Muslims in Arabic, were the exact opposite. And they were actually, you know, the, the long and short of it is they were, again, in line with what history has taught, which is the Islamic Jihad against so-called infidels. And there's no grievance needed. The, you're, you're an infidel is the grievance. And that's actually what led to, and we can talk about the history, and that's a whole big topic, but, you know, the long and short of it is, if you went to the, in the 8th century, if you saw what was the Christian world, it actually got swallowed up, two-thirds of it, by Islam. So countries that we today nonchalantly call Islamic, you know, from Egypt, all, all of North Africa to Morocco, Syria, Iraq, and then later also Asia Minor, which we call Turkey, all of that was actually the original Christian world even older than what the, North, the European portion, which is what we think of. Um, and all that was conquered through jihad, through the same exact logic that people like bin Laden and later ISIS detailed to us. So when you hear you know, ISIS, the Islamic State, would go and give people three choices, convert to Islam or pay tribute, the jizya, or get killed, that actually, imagine that on an exponential level, went on for centuries. Um, and it went as far as, you know, went into the middle of France at the Battle of Tours, and it stayed there for decades later. It reached as far as Iceland. They were actually grabbing slaves from Iceland in as late as the 15th century. Wow. And, of course, all the, Bal and the Balkans were conquered, so it was all the same logic. Well, hey, Raymond, it's been 20 years since our country was viciously attacked on 9-11 by terrorists that largely planned that attack from the mountains and caves of Afghanistan. Do you think the way that the U.S. left, somebody, some people would say we surrendered, Afghanistan on August 31st, 2021, has emboldened our enemies and made our allies distrustful of our leadership in the world? If it's done nothing else, it's most certainly done that. Um, and they, and I don't, I'm, I'm not conjecturing or guessing. This is actually stuff that I see them say because I follow um, what Muslims say. As I mentioned, their own language and on the Internet and their own websites and on their own podcasts. And that's exactly what they say. And, you know, connecting it back to uh, bin Laden himself, he has a famous saying, which is 
that by nature people always bet on the strong horse or they like the strong horse. And by that, he simply means that by nature, people will gravitate and work with, cooperate, even submit to the more powerful force. So if the United States is being perceived as weak, that doesn't bring about reconciliation. That doesn't make um, these radical Islamist jihadist groups more um, open or forgiving. It actually emboldens and makes them more aggressive. And again, we can get into the history, but history even teaches that the only times that Islamic powers did not attack and try to annex their non-Muslim members was when they were weaker and knew they were weaker. But any time they felt that they could expand, they most certainly did. And there was no <laughs> rationale above and beyond what I was mentioning, the Islamic impetus to conquer. Um, Raymond, so, yeah, I, certainly this is a bet. I understand that along the lines of, of much of the sort of inside knowledge you have by virtue of your, your personal history, um, I also am aware that your knowledge of Arabic and your familiarity with Middle Eastern sources have actually enabled you to offer breaking news at times. Um, what have you been able to expose and uncover simply by virtue of who you are, uh, the languages you speak, and the history uh, that you bring? Well, basically, a lot of the things that we are that, that the narrative tells us, I definitely I come across things that are the exact opposite. Um, you know, so the main general one, which was for the very longest time, and this again to trace it to 9/11, was after 9/11, the, the talking heads and the main points were that they did this because of grievances. And I'm even thinking that there was a very popular book called uh, Imperial Hubris that came out soon after 9/11 by a former CIA officer and that was what it was all about it was just you know all the bad things that the united states has done and now muslims have been driven against the wall and they're just lashing out and that's not what they say that's the irony sometimes of course they'll they, if they're talking directly to the west they will certainly do that but if they're talking indirectly to each other they just talk about what i'm saying which is just a simple jihadist imperative to wage war but more specific things um, you know, that, that I saw that were different. So, for example, you'll remember when um, the uprisings that happened during the, well, this is during the Muslim spring era, but the attacks on the U.S. consul uh, in Libya and, and the embassy in Egypt, and, you know, they led to deaths of Americans. Um, immediately, the Obama administration pinned it on an anti-Islamic movie made by some no-name that was on YouTube. And that's actually what they said. But days before it even happened, I was reading in Arabic sources about how they were planning on attacking them, and it had nothing to do with this movie. It was just, you know, more aggression, and, and it happened right around 9-11, I think, if I recall. Um, also, there was a fatwa, um, you know, at right around the same time that we were, we were boasting about, for example, um, renewed re relationships with countries like Saudi Arabia. All of a sudden, quietly, a fatwa comes out, so any church found... You know, on the peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula must be destroyed. And Raymond, that, again, I'm so sorry. I'm, we could listen to you all day, but um, the segment's yeah. at an end. So I am so sorry. Thank you so much no for joining us. Thank you, Raymond. Uh, we, need, we need to take Thanks a short break, but please stick around for our next segment. You're going to meet one of the top immigration lawyers in California who also happens to call San Diego her home. We will be back in a flash. You're listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego.
It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. Well, we are delighted to welcome our next guest to the segment. Good friend of mine and a very savvy lawyer in immigration, of all things. Boy, who would have thought that would have become so relevant? But it is. And Larry, how about introducing our guest for this for the segment? Please do that. Esther Valdez Clayton is the principal attorney of Valdez and Associates, located in San Diego, California. Uh, Esther attained her law degree from the University of California, Berkeley, which is known as Bolt Hall, an incredibly great law school, where she studied immigration and asylum law and was an associate editor of the Berkeley Journal of International Law, as well as the La Raza Law Journal. She's a political and immigration analyst for KUSI News. She's been on Newsmax, Telemundo, BBC World News, and many, many others. And it is just such a privilege to have her on. Welcome to the show, Esther. I'm so happy to be on with both of you. Like we were talking before, I've known Wendy for years, and I've met you through Christian Legal Society, and it's just an honor that we're all working together trying to make a difference for all the people we care about, including our city. Yeah, for sure. You know, before we get into talking about what's going on with our nation's southern border, um, Esther, I know like me, you are a a commentator on many different stations, but I also, we also have another connection. You serve on the Coronado School Board. And of course, I've lived in Coronado for years and years. And, you know, just from a, a human practical perspective, I know that many of our listeners might be curious and I know you, you're newly married, too. How do you manage to balance your law practice with all of your other uh, responsibilities, saving the world in so many different ways, and even having a great relationship? How do you do it? Wow. I never just step back to think about it. It's just things I love. I love family. Mm. I love politics. I love community. So I never compartmentalize. It segues beautifully. And the way it's just organized, it's just based on passion. I moved from my law practice supervising immigration um, cases for people who are trying to desperately flee their country on pain of persecution to politics. Just this morning, I came back from uh, speaking with Larry Elder. He's doing Latino outreach. Uh, We hosted him at a Latino evangelical church. In a couple of minutes, I'll head over to the office and I get to speak with you and, you know, promote values and challenge people's uh, thinking and ways of mind. So, um, it's not so much as balancing, just doing what I naturally love and enjoy doing. Well, nice. Hey, Esther, in a recent interview on television, you stated that as far as the root cause of mass immigration into the U.S., uh, at least from the from Mexico, that there is violence against women, and you even call it femicide. Uh, could you explain to our listeners what's happening in Mexico regarding the targeting of women? Yes. Well, as an immigration attorney, I've been practicing in this area for almost 20 years. The vast majority of my clients are women, are children who have been trafficked um, either through the U.S. border or coming into the U.S. border. They're fleeing persecution. But what I most see is that the countries with the highest rates of targeted discrimination, persecution and true torture are in Latin America. And that's what statistics show 
Um, we don't like to think about it because we like to think about, wow, I'm going to Cancun or Acapulco for a cruise or for, to stay in a resort. But Mexico is five of the 20 most violent cities in the world. And what that means is they also have the second highest rate of femicide. Femicide is the targeted killing of women on account of their gender. And it sounds like a bunch of legalese, but practically speaking, if you think about it right now with the Texas abortion law, many women were decrying it and saying it was a war on women and they were hating uh, women here in the United States. And I just want to step back and say, wow, this is not persecution. Most of these women are fighting to have give birth, fighting to be moms. And that's what you see crossing the border, women with their children, protecting their children and the right to be moms. So um, you know, I, I don't know how it happened, but God just placed me in that position to be able to represent women and children who are fleeing true forms of persecution and violence. Oh, Esther, I think that's so important to make that distinction. You know, it's so easy to just sort of, you know, stereotype border crossers as, oh, you know, for all the wrong reasons. But we we know that's not true with all of them. And, and God bless you for, for really working on, on making, helping them to make better lives. Um, one of the other issues that we, we've been hearing about recently, in fact, we've been hearing about it for years. It just seems like exponentially the problem has multiplied recently, this opioid issue at the border and people bringing across drugs and smuggling and um, sometimes taking advantage of the more lenient policies that this administration has espoused. And I just wonder, you know, how do we separate those that are coming, you know, legitimately seeking asylum or for other reasons from those that are uh, sadly some some of them being used and exploited by drug traffickers. How do we do that? Is there a way to sort of uh, any red flags that maybe we we can tell we're dealing with cartel crossers rather than legitimate the kind of women and children that you help? Very simply, you're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. We do it through the law. When a person tries to enter the U.S. border and they're fleeing and they're asking for asylum, they're asked, who's persecuting you? What we saw under the Obama administration, now under Biden administration, they just don't care to ask those hard questions or even ask for evidence. They're just admitting everyone and anyone. And the way I know this is because if you look at the statistics on who wins an asylum case, only less than 15% actually win. That means the U.S. government's letting in 85% of people who have no chance of winning asylum, no chance of getting legal here, no proof of doing it. They know it, they're aware of it, and yet they let them in. The, and going back to what I said about the law, if you just apply the law and ask them, where's your proof? Where's the evidence? Who's persecuting you? Under asylum law, it has to be your governor, or your government, or a group that your government doesn't want to control. If we just apply it that way, that would take away 85% of the cases, weed out the 15% that we need to help the refugees, the human trafficked uh, victims, the women, the children, and even the men that are exploited for their labor. There's more human slavery now than ever before. And we see it and we live it here in the United States, but we don't want to acknowledge that when we go sit down, say, for example, at a downtown restaurant, if you go to the kitchen, the Mexicans are preparing your sushi. Mexicans are on the construction site, many of whom are undocumented. That's really what's happening at the border. And I think there's economic interests at play that don't want to help fix the border. 
Wow, that plays into my next question, Esther. How bad is the problem of human trafficking, both for sex and for cheap labor on our southern border? For example, I recently saw a news footage of children that were being brought across the border. Now, if this footage was real, these children were sedated. They were all like passed out, almost like they had been drugged as they bring these kids over. Is that an example, you think, of human trafficking? It's a huge problem, but more than that is that it's so difficult to track because we don't know the true nature. But one statistic that just came out about a week ago was that we all saw the waves of the migrant children, the unaccompanied children coming in from Central America to the Texas border asking for asylum without their moms or dads. Under the law, the United States has to accept them. They're let in. Javier Becerra, the now director of Health and Human Services, who used to be here in California, he lets them in. He supervises them here in San Diego Convention Center. We housed them. We fed them. We educated them while they were reconnected. Now it comes out that the Biden administration has lost track of one in three of these children. One in three, and they're currently investigating that a lot of these children were handed over to labor traffickers. This is out in mainstream news. So the fact that they're now reporting it just gives us the tip of the iceberg of how huge of a problem is. And going back to your opioid question, it's more lucrative under um, under the current pandemic closures. The borders closed because of COVID restrictions. It's more lucrative to bring in a girl, a boy that you're going to sexually exploit and stream it live for payment and be able to sell that person over and over to uh, whet the sexual appetites of nefarious doers. It's more lucrative than bringing in fentanyl or opioid. They will be caught. The mules can't cross. The rigs are stopped. The motorcycles and the drones aren't working because of the border closures. So why not bring in boys and girls that you can exploit? And then they fall into the system and Biden lost track of one in three. That's the network. And that's why one judge even said the U.S. government is closing the circle of human trafficking for these drug smugglers that start in Central America. And then we just lose track of them, never to be heard of again. Yeah, Esther, we want to thank you for joining us and providing all this great detail. You know, it just it breaks our hearts to hear uh, some of these stories. And you know what I've always found curious about the about this crisis at the border is there's bipartisan passion surrounding protecting people, people, regardless of whether somebody's here legally, illegally, um, uh, you know, uh, coming across the right way, the wrong way. No one wants exploitation. And especially when you start bringing the children into the equation, I've been amazed uh, that actually plenty of people on the left have come out and asked Joe Biden the tough questions about what you just said. How are you losing track of people? Um, So I'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, You've just really sort of shown a spotlight on some of these some of these issues. Um, Thank you to our listeners, too. You know, Larry, one of the things as we close out the show, as we also commemorate the, the 9-11 victims and our prayers are with those communities continually, is sometimes it's crises like this that really bring us together. And it just kind of warms my heart to recognize that there are so many issues that all of us care deeply about yes. and that there are those very important issues that unite us rather than divide us. So on that note, we will see you next week for more of Today with Dr. Wendy. God bless you and have a wonderful week.
Thank you for joining us for Today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. 